So welcome to this very special episode of GU Cast, where we've come back in the building, Renew. We're for a on site. I mean, because we have to do some work in between podcasts, Declan. Yes. So we're normally in our new studio uh, out in my house, actually, our, yeah. our home studio uh, that regular viewers will be familiar with. But today's international guest sort of he's on such a tight schedule, he refused yeah. to come out to Hawthorne, and yeah. we've had to chase him. Yeah, exactly. So um, yeah, it's a great privilege to welcome back uh, Professor Pete Ost uh, from Belgium. Pete, good to see you, friend of the podcast. Thank you for having me over. I think it's my second time on the podcast, but first time in real life, so I'm very happy to yeah, be here. Yeah, he was on Zoom before. What was that comment you had about him? He's, he's a lot shorter on he's, Zoom. He's a lot shorter <laughs> on Zoom, said Renu. Yeah. Um, he's quite tall. Yeah, and he's here for um, uh, Shankar Siva. Professor Shankar Siva is joining us, regular friend of the podcast. Shankar's got this uh, big love in this week at Peter Mac. What do they call it? The Sabre Symposium. Sabre Symposium 2023. Yeah, big love in for stereotactic radiation. A lot of geeky radiation oncologists group, grouping together. We're yeah. all here to hail Pete, so it's amazing. Hail Pete, hail yes, Pete. yeah. One of the big godfathers of stereotactic radiation. And our but other guests... of course guests. we have uh, yes. Michael Hoffman, because it wouldn't be a podcast without Michael Hoffman. He's one of our favourites. Welcome, oh, Michael. Thanks, Renu. <laughs> I was a bit shocked because I came up here. I thought we'd be seeing Pete by Zoom, and he was here in person. I was I like, know. what's he doing here? Yeah. Starstruck. How did you get here? Starstruck, I think. Starstruck. <laughs> it is great to have him in person, isn't it? Wonderful. Um, yeah, look, so welcome back. And we thought, uh, Shankar thought the topic of the day would be lymph node recurrences. Let, let's go straight to one of our most common scenarios uh, in prostate cancer is biochemical recurrence, of course. Um, and we brought Michael along because, uh, you know, nowadays a discussion about biochemical recurrence, especially after prostatectomy, I suppose, inevitably leads to a discussion about the role of imaging uh, in identifying uh, disease recurrence. So we thought we'd kick off uh, by talking about uh, the evaluation of biochemical recurrence. What does this multidisciplinary group think about it? And then we want to go on and talk about the management of, in particular, lymph nodes that we see uh, on that. So do you want to kick off and, and start grilling these two? Because there are some differing opinions that those of you who follow us on Twitter uh, might uh, realize about the, the evaluation of BCR renew. Yeah, I think we should go straight to Pete. He's got the microphone, he's ready to go. Um, how, do you, how do you do it, Pete? How do you evaluate it? What's your definition of it? Well. More interestingly, we've seen a move to, towards earlier, earlier treatment. So we're moving away from adjuvant, and we were more in the late salvage, but now we're moving closer to adjuvant again, because we are now seeing patients at 0 0.09, 0 0.1, 0 0.11. So that's very early biochemical recurrence. And often, urologists are no longer waiting even to have that confirmed rise. We're getting them at the earlier, earliest signs of, of failure, if we can call that already failure. And that's uh, then a discussion with your patient that you need to have. Do we treat today or do we, do we wait a bit longer? Because some patients do have a very long doubling time, which can give them some more time to you know, relax, observe, and see what happens. If I see them that early, I very rarely do any imaging because often it's negative and then it's all about you know how much time does the patient have to wait to get the imaging done how fast can we get the report how anxious is the patient and what's the likelihood of the result being you know changing the management and if all of those are not in favor of going for the imaging we often don't do it and we go either observe or go for salvage radiotherapy I think that's the I mean, it's been a source of great confusion here because, you know, we get these ultra-sensitive PSAs and it causes a lot of, um, you know, angst and, and frustration for clinicians and patients alike. And we thought after, you know, trials like RAVES and Radicals, we'd put that whole, uh, you know, debate of adjuvant radiotherapy to bed. But in fact, there's a lot of variability in, in what the practice is. Uh, Shankar, have we found that? 
Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting, often the patient's somewhat directed. Uh, we can often reassure patients who have a slow increase in their um, PSA postoperatively that there is time to wait and there may be an opportunity. So depending on what your definition is, it might be a PSA of 0.2 that you might consider some type of imaging, such as PSMA PET, uh, to be able to help delineate and if there is any occult metastasis at that time and, and rule out those patients who may not benefit from salvage radiotherapy. But many patients aren't willing to wait that long. We're getting a bit of a shake of a head here from Pete already. <laughs> many patients aren't even willing to wait that long. And it, it makes sense. If you've got multiple incremental increases in the PSA over a period of a year or however long it is, uh, some patients are just, why, why are you waiting? You know, what is the point of waiting at this point? You know there is some disease. And we know we have a treatment that has a benefit in this population. Why aren't you delivering that for me? So you don't agree on waiting? Well, no, I, I actually nodded a bit because... The, once you, for example, see something on a pet which is outside the pelvis, then your argument was maybe this patient has no longer any benefit of salvage or local salvage radiotherapy. But actually, we don't know that. And that's what we all thought about when a patient is diagnosed with distant disease from the initial diagnosis. We also still do the prostate radiotherapy. Okay, the bulk of disease is larger and there's still a benefit. So the, the question to me is, do we abandon salvage radiotherapy because the patient has a single spot outside the pelvis, for example. And to me, that's something we still don't know today. So can I translate that for Michael? Um, is a PSMA, <laughs> is a PSMA pet actually useful? <laughs> well, it's funded for this indication in Australia and in many other countries now. So I would say, you know, very few patients in Australia would proceed to salvage radiotherapy without having a PSMA PET CT first. Uh, because, you know, we don't like to treat blindly. If you do have disease outside the pelvis, then you can have a think about it and inform the patient appropriately. I mean, when you give salvage radiation, I think you're aiming for cure. And if you've got a bone metastasis, you can't be aiming for cure. So your whole way of discussing about what you're about to embark on with the patient is different. It's, it's, uh, but another perspective I had is that maybe Pete's doing a lot more primary radiotherapy and when, we, when you started with that topic of biochemical recurrence, he's thinking post-radiation and maybe there's less surgery, whereas in Australia maybe there's a lot more surgery and therefore when there's biochemical recurrence, you're thinking salvage radiation. No, we, we still get a lot of surgery, unfortunately. No, that's not, <laughs> no, that's not true. No, I think we've, we've got... It, it's, it's a big mix in, in Belgium, but I think we were mostly discussing post-radical yeah. uh, prostatectomy failures. And so, so to summarise, people fail after surgery, but they don't fail that much after radiation. <laughs> oh, that's a completely different debate. I think <laughs> for the correct patient, whatever you choose probably doesn't make any difference. Some patients are destined to fail, and there I think optimization of treatment, um, and that might be either with systemic therapy, more local therapies, whatever we, we will find out in the future. Uh, but there will still be a proportion that does fail. And if you go only for one local treatment and you have a proportion that still fails, the question then is what is the optimal follow-up treatment? And PSMA PET might help us direct something, but we are still unsure where the added value is. So in Belgium, the majority of patients don't get a PSMA PET. Um, it's also because we don't have PSMA PET everywhere and I want to reserve it for the patients that really need it question is still who these are um, but we've got a lot of trials going on in oligometastatic disease for example where they then can enroll in a trial and then I think it's a very interesting point to do that 
outside the trial, if, if I look at the results of Savage Radiotherapy, and you look, for example, at the, the SPORT trial, and you look five years down the line, how many patients following prostate bed, pelvis, and six months of ADT, what's the percentage in five years that dies from prostate cancer? Almost none. No, yeah. mm. So if we think about a PSMA PET that helps us improve an outcome, it won't be overall survival. It won't be time to metastasis. So what is it, where is it helping? Or are we thinking 10 years down the line that it may, will make a difference there? And I think it would be very hard that it will have that big of an impact. Can I go back to the early biochemical recurrence setting sure. that we started talking about? Because you know the, the outcome of the adjuvant versus salvage trials pretty much led to most of the world agreeing that there's no point doing adjuvant, meaning we would agree PSA below 0.2. So as you say, the, yeah. un, uh, the, uh, the ultra-sensitives are a waste of time. I don't tend to refer anyone to you, Shankar, until their PSA is 0.2. Now, PN1, there's a certain, but by and large, the majority of patients, um, uh, I don't send them to you until it's 0.2, and I don't do a PSMA PET scan to 0.2. So just for the audience out there, we many urologists have many patients with these 0.09s or 0.11s, as you said. Pete, you know, are, do you think it makes any difference? I mean, I, what what I do is I tend to wait because of the early salvage data, or do you think there's a role? Because we'll ask Michael in a minute, what's the positive scan rate at 0.1 or 0.15? It's like negligible. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't think there's any difference in waiting from 0.1 to 0.2. There's no evidence that there is any difference. You can probably wait until 0.3, uh, yeah. but we know it, it's, it's a scale. So the higher it gets, the lower the likelihood that local salvage radiotherapy only is of benefit for the patient. The higher it gets, the faster the doubling time, the typical things we, we typically look at, then local therapy only probably is not good enough. Do you agree, Shane? Well, you know, I wouldn't say there's no evidence because there are some papers already. There's the, um, the um, Stevenson's and Tenduka uh, series from Cleveland Clinic, the multi-center series that show that even early salvage is more beneficial than later. There is a, potentially a lead time bias on that. Uh, Daria Tilke's paper in the JCO earlier this year looking at a cutoff of 0.25, so you know, less than that 0.3 mark you mentioned. So there is some evidence that earlier salvage may be beneficial, but by and large I agree. I think it's you know, mostly when I see a man with a, uh, a higher PSA postoperatively, I tend to tell him, let's just wait, let's just monitor and we'll, let's pull the trigger with the PET scan at 0.2. So, okay, that, that's, we've identified who maybe we're going to start evaluating. So before we go on and talk about things we might find on a PET scan and what to do with them, which is going to be the, the chunk of today's talk, Michael, then, you know, when should we be imaging these patients? You do lots of PSMA PETs, you've been doing them for 10 years. You know, it's disappointing seeing a negative scan, I suppose. Where, where's the sweet spot, you know? Look, I think the sweet spot yeah. is when it'll change your management. Yeah. Overall survival, it, that's not the role of a PET scan. We're talking a disease that has a very long natural history, and it's a scan. Doing a scan will never improve your outcome. It won't improve survival. It's not a treatment. No, no, but, that, that, but, it, but when you change your management as a result of the scan, that's when you can potentially change a downstream outcome. So if you're determined to observe this patient based on PSA doubling time, clinical characteristics, Gleason score, all the information you have, patient comorbidities, characteristics, don't do the scan. Just observe. When you hit a trigger, now I want to give salvage radiation. I think in Australia now... Once you hit that trigger that I want to give a treatment, then you do the PSMA PET if it's going to change your management. And the way PSMA PET changes your management here is by identifying essentially disease outside your planned radiation treatment field. And it stands to reason. It's logical. You're trying to encapsulate all the disease. If you can't do that, you will fail in inverted commas, meaning you won't cure the patient. 
uh, and even if your intent is not cure, presumably you want to target all the disease, uh, and you need a PSMA pet to do that, both in the pelvis, because you have these nodes in sometimes unusual locations, and more importantly, distant metastases. Or, of course, sometimes you see lesions within the radiation field and it does change the plan a bit, doesn't it? Yeah. Indeed it does. The question still remains for me, should it change? For example, let's say you've got a 4 millimeter spot that's not in our typical field, but let's say you give savage radiation plus 6 months of ADT. Who says that that 4 millimeter node will survive and will show up at later scans and that will be the reason of that patient failing? We still don't know that. But by the same token, if you, don't, if you do the PSMA PET and there's no disease in the prostate bed and you see the lymph node, it's, it's pretty illogical that I'm going to irradiate the prostate bed where there isn't any disease probably and I'm going to leave that lymph node alone because of this, you know, it's a, it's a very odd way of thinking. It is an odd way of thinking, but the question is, will that disease survive and influence the patient's outcome? I think Pete believes in magic by no, just no, no. treating There's blindly. There's a reason we got them to stand next to right, each other. Right. I, I, don't, I don't think it's magic. If, if we typically treat our normal field and you see the recurrence rates are being so low, that means that the majority of disease is being treated despite we are not seeing it. And that might be a combination of local therapies and a systemic therapy, meaning that a lot of the microscopic disease, which might be popping up more and more on the PSMA PET scans, might be cured even though it's not in our direct field. And the analogy a lot of radiation oncologists make, okay, I see a spot, that means I also have to increase the dose, where we have almost no evidence that for these PSMA lesions we need to do that. But again, the common sense says exactly. you see something, you treat something, oh, there's some visibility, so the dose needs to be higher. There's not a lot of data on there. There's now a French group uh, coming with the spider results, which indicates some, but I can tell you there were so many retrospective papers, one of them being my PhD on dose escalation in the prostate bed. <laughs> there are now two trials, completely negative, meaning that I always watch out with retrospective evidence since my, my own PhD, it's ready for the garbage bin, <laughs> unfortunately, but it, it, it gave rise to an interesting hypothesis and that hypothesis got tested and it was wrong, which is fine, which is yeah. perfectly fine. It could be the same here. And we are lucky now because as you said, we've been doing PSMA PET for almost 10 years. We should have a 10th year party next year. Yeah. Uh, so we're starting to get long-term follow-up and not just from retrospective series, but even from prospective high-quality series. So we recently presented the 54-month follow-up from the randomised pro-PSMA study, which was staging rather than biochemical recurrence. But a, you know, a question in that study was, these tiny nodes we see in the pelvis on the PSMA PET-CT, they, do they matter? Are they real? Are they prognostically uh, significant? Pete used the word micrometastases. I wish we could see micrometastases, but if we see it on a PSMA PET, it's already macro. It's already sort of three, four millimetres in size. And we showed that, indeed, N1 positivity on a PSMA PET was prognostic for downstream failures, you know, out to sort of four or five years. You did mention a, a good point there. I mean, Pete, first of all, you've got to apologise to Michael. Um, he's new to oncology, so... Um, <laughs> but we did mention a good point where you had an um, uh, opportunity to treat a salvage setting for the prostate bed in a patient with an established node. Now... All our data so far would suggest we have to treat the whole pelvis, so that's where the evidence is. But does it make sense to just treat the prostate bed uh, in that field, or should we just be treating the nodes? These patients have a higher risk of failing somewhere else, right? Yes, yeah, so 
I think we are, it's always a balance about when to treat elective nodes versus when only to treat what you see. I think if we wait to treat only what we see, we are too late in many patients. On the other hand, we are probably over-treating a lot of pelvises in also a lot of patients. So if we know that the sensitivity in the pelvis in the primary setting is around 40%. So if we don't see a node, there's a substantial likelihood that there still are nodes. If you see one, there's also a substantial likelihood that there's still more. The question is, what do we do with that information? And I do agree that if we see a positive node in the pelvis, we will treat the pelvis. But probably I was already going to treat the pelvis. It might indeed change if it's just outside my typical dose zone, I will include it. I do what common sense people do. But for me, the biological question still is very relevant. Mm. Um, but nevertheless, we do include that node in the field. Would you omit the prostate bed? And what have you seen? That's, that's a good a question. question. Okay. Yes. The urologist okay. is yeah, very yeah. concerned, isn't it? Yeah. That's where the morbidity is. Exactly. And what have you seen in the storm trial, for example? Yeah. In the well, it's still early days, um, but we will be showing at ASTRO24 okay. whether it's a good idea or not to leave the prostate bed out. Okay. I would not do it for now. And probably also not in the future. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't. So don't do it. <laughs> there's. A Hang on, you're gonna not irradiate, or you we, are? We are going to irradiate. We are going to. Don't but admit. again, it will be a trade-off, because it won't be that all. If, if the if the, the prostate bed is negative, it doesn't mean that the disease is necessarily there. So not all patients where we omit the the prostate bed will relapse in the prostate bed. Of course not but the likelihood might be higher. And again, that's a trade-off. Indeed, the toxicity, what we saw at the three months already, toxicity if we treat the pelvis plus prostate bed versus pelvis only, the toxicity is coming from the prostate bed. Exactly. Mm. But if we fast forward five Absolutely. or 10 years, isn't lutetium PSMA just gonna replace all of this external beam stuff? I don't think so, to be honest. I, I thought you did believe in magic. Well, there's magic and magic, you know? And that's a bit too, it, I personally think the dose is too low that we are delivering. Uh, so it probably won't solve a lot of the issues we have being a lot of disease is invisible still for, for PSMA. So the question is if, if your scan is negative and you deliver lutetium PSMA, then probably it's not homing to the right target, right? Yeah. So then I think we still be doing what we're doing now and it will be a lot to do with adding systemic therapy probably. Uh, for the correct patients. Excuse the background noise. Was that them calling Michael Hoffman for his afternoon run of <laughs> lutetium PSMA patients? I think so. um, we are treating 10 <laughs> patients today. So uh, myself and Rue wanted to give you some clinical scenarios to, to, to push on uh, and talk about this. Because Pete, of course, uh, one, of the, one of the really good um, uh, pieces of work you did a number of years ago, it's when you're, you became well known to us, was the STOMP trial, um, a phase two randomized trial of uh, stereotactic radiotherapy. And it was the pre-PSMA era. But this question, this patient population is still very important, uh, very important to us. So we have a patient let's say post-surgery or could be post-radiotherapy, they've had a PSMA PET CT, we see disease. Let's say we see, um, uh, we'll give you two scenarios. The first will be lymph nodes uh, in the retroperitoneum and the second will be low volume bone metastases, you know. So here's the key question as we look at this, you know, is there a role for just treating those lesions, metastasis-directed therapy, as we say, as you did in the STOM trial? Is there a saber very well tolerated? That's why you're down in Australia to talk about that again. Maybe surgery we can talk about, but you know, versus 
going hard with systemic therapy, combined systemic therapy, systemic therapy with metastasis-directed no. therapy. So where do you feel we are with the kind of PET imaging era, identifying low volume disease, lymph nodes yep. or bone? What do we think? I think first thing is, use the most sensitive imaging you can get. And at this time point, it is PSMA. So there's no reason why you should rely on something else. Use the most sensitive one, because otherwise you're always treating the tip of the iceberg. And even with PSMA, you still are missing a lot of the disease, probably. So then the question is, which patients can get away with radiotherapy alone? Which patients probably should not get radiotherapy? And who, uh, who needs that combination? Um, we're getting closer. So we found some biomarkers. Uh, one is uh, EVs, uh, so extracellular vesicles. Sounds promising. Another one is looking at the aggressivity of the disease, looking at the mutations that are present in the primary. We did that in Stomp and Orioli. And from that, it was pretty obvious that if your patient has a typical mutation, TB53, BRCA, ATM, whatsoever, these patients with radiotherapy alone, it's still better to do radiotherapy than to observe. But radiotherapy alone doesn't buy them any time off ADT. So probably their systemic therapy is the cornerstone. It's biology. Then the question is, does adding SBRT in these patients over systemic therapy alone help? I don't know. That's what we often do. But in a proportion of my patients, I'm, I'm no longer saying, look, SBRT is the only treatment for you. No, it, for you it will be probably be systemic treatment. The patients that don't have these mutations, have the slow doubling times, have the somewhat lower Gleason scores, they can get a very long time off ADT. And those are the 30% that if you look five years down, down the line that are still free from ADT. They probably need a repeat SBRT or Sabre course down the line, maybe a third one, possibly, but they're still free from ADT. The question is, is that relevant for the patient? For some will say, yes, I'm happy that I still don't need systemic therapy. But a proportion of them will nevertheless fail anyways. And it's finding those bi the ones that are biologically really bad that will be the essential part in the future. Very good. I have to 100% agree with that answer. And the other co comment is, of course, if you're at Peter Mac, you'd be enrolling them in the POPSTAR2 trial, which is randomising between uh, Sabre and Sabre Plus Letitia and PSMA, open next week. Uh, there are other studies that are open as well, like Lunar, for example, in UCLA, that are addressing this question too. Um, I think one important thing is one advantage of using a local therapy in this context is there is that most of the studies that we've done with local therapy in combination with systemic therapy have a finite period for the systemic therapy. For a man who's on systemic therapy, often for lifelong, they can accumulate a lot of toxicities. It's quite appealing and compelling to be able to have a short period, whether that be six months or with a doublet type of therapy, with the knowledge that you'll come off that systemic therapy and hopefully have a long disease-free interval. And agreed, some patients who have very good uh, disease biology and long disease-free intervals uh, and low-volume disease on um, ultra-sensitive next-generation imaging could just be treated with Sabre alone. I mean, it sounds like PSA kinetics is a really important deciding factor, isn't it? You know, it's a simple thing that we can all use, and I think that's that really would have a role in, in your decision. Yeah, for example, so, when you look at the STOM patients and how many of them would meet the Embark criteria, most of them, yeah. actually. Mm. And that's in, in many of those uh, patients that are enrolled in trials, probably the ones that you will have will, will have the same in the Popstar 2. We did another concept being SBRT versus SBRT plus darolutamide, which is more targeting the, the hormone axis. And there it will probably be boiling down to the same again. It will be the biology. 
Yeah. You know, you know what I generally think about prostate cancer as I get older and more experienced and uh, battered and bruised from looking after so many lovely patients over the years is doing less is often th simply the best thing you can do. And I always kind of resist the, the temptation to add and to add or go early and go early and go early if you really don't have the evidence. And Pete constantly refrains back to that. But I also understand that in that situation, early prostate cancer, it's extremely difficult to accumulate the really high evidence we would like. So we must still rely on, to some extent, well, yeah, recruiting to trials, but also discussing it with our patients. And, and I think that two points I'd make on it. Number one is I firmly believe that castration-free survival, that terrible word castration, is a really, really valuable endpoint for most patients, especially the younger patients. If you say we can avoid uh, putting you on ADT for a longer period, I genuinely believe that most, most patients I speak to will value that. Even if they understand I will eventually need it and I might even still die of my prostate cancer eventually, but I will value one, two, three, four years. And therefore, things like well-tolerated metastasis is, is a good thing. But so second, can't you yeah. just not write a script and Co just correct. do nothing? And, and look, that's why STOMP was such a great trial, because people will say, well, the best way of um, you know, avoiding castration is not write the prescription. Uh, and pre-specifying when you should start ADT was, uh, is always a challenge, but you did that in STOMP. But can I ask your thoughts on castration-free survival? A lot of patients listen to this podcast. One of our favorite patients, Tim Baker, has been on a few times talking about the yeah. devastating side effects of ADT. He's written a book about it. Uh, your, your view on that before we start talking about that combined with darolutamide and this and that and the other, yeah. um, just the value of doing nothing and watching the PSA doubling time and doing other biomarkers? I, I must admit, for some patients it is devastating and there are patients that actually don't notice a big difference. So even in a big patient group, there is, and, and you can't know unless you start treatment. So I have a lot of patients that started their ADT treatment and said, no, I want off. And some patients say, no, I'm fine with it, PSA is low, quality of life is, is acceptable to me. So that's a, a discussion you have with your patient as well. How far do you want to push it? And especially for the younger patients who are still sexually active, for those patients, again, there are different things that are put in the balance. And for some patients, that might tilt towards observing. And I have patients where I say, look, SBRT, you've got too many lesions on your pet, so the next step will be systemic therapy. And they say, but I'm still feeling okay. The spots are small. I'm not feeling these spots. Can you still observe? And then I refer them to the immediate versus delayed ADT trials. And then I say, look, you are actually correct that postponing actually does not harm your long-term long survival and might improve your quality of life. The question again is, what is that ideal trigger to start ADT that you're not too late, that they're not symptomatic and so forth? And, and nobody knows, but then that's when you enter your personal relationship with your patient. And then that relationship becomes very, very important. And then it's a dialogue. And I spend so many of these consultations just going into dialogue with the patient, the relatives, and it's, it's what they put in that balance. And I can say, I can do A, that will result in this. B will result in that. This will inflict your quality of life on average in that way. And, and that is the, the, the fairest discussion you can have. So I agree, there's more than survival. There's quality of life as well. And that's, what, that's our role, actually, as physicians, I think. Beautiful. Love it. Nicely said. So finally, where, where, where are we going, uh, Michael? Can I ask you about imaging of biochemical recurrence in lymph nodes? Are we still going to be using the current uh, tranche of PSMA tracers, or uh, what do you think is going to be interesting for imaging these low-volume patients? Well, PSMA PET's here to stay. I think uh, in many places it's still not available. We just can order it. It's available in more than 100 PET centres around Australia, so you can get a PSMA PET within a day or two pretty, pretty easily, uh, just about anywhere here. Uh, I don't think there is any 
radically new technology at the moment that's imminently going to replace it. No doubt something will come along. Our imaging technology is getting a little bit better. So every year we get a touch better. Uh, here we use FDG a bit, acknowledging that not all tumours are PSMA positive. We can get trapped in some of these cases and FDG can be extremely useful. Uh, and then it's going to be all these trials incorporating PSMA PET CT. I think it's going to be incorporated into any phase three trial that started today probably has a PSMA PET in it. Uh, so we're going to get more and more evidence over the next few years of how to best use it. I think an important role for the entire society and us as physicians is still that we have to convince FDA and other authorities that to allow the PSMA PET to be, at least be embedded, but also look at it as a potential endpoint. So they're now the first trials looking at PSMA metastasis free survival are now embarking. So I think that is very exciting um, because that will speed up a lot of the development there as well. So I think that's also an important role for us to keep pushing that at least we embed it in all the trials that we can get the evidence we need. Very Absolutely. good. And Shankar, uh, to you, what about technology for ablating it? Uh, you and your fancy machines, are there any big changes coming there? Should yes. these be MR, LINAC um, uh, targeted metastasis directed therapy? Uh, I think it's a Da Vinci robot, isn't it? That's <laughs> a, no, I think there's, the technologies are improving a lot. And in fact, it's a collaboration with nuclear medicine that actually helps us target a lot better as well. Um, everything's becoming more precise. Everything in, in, in uh, prostate cancer from surgery to radiosurgery to um, whatever we use, lutetium therapy, these are all things that are in terbium now. They're all becoming uh, better, so hopefully in the future our patients will benefit. Yeah, and, and Popstar 2, that'll be a great trial to get running. So it's Sabre versus Sabre plus lutetium for PSMA identified um, oligometastatic disease, no ADT. Love no it. ADT. We're yeah. looking forward to recruiting that Absolutely. one. Absolutely, next week. Great, very thanks good. very much. Well, that's all we have time for on this um, Back in the Peter Mac Building episode of GUcast. Thanks very much to Pete, our international guest, for coming down. Hope you have a great few days here. Thanks very much to Shankar, uh, to Michael, and uh, that's all we have time for. Absolutely. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Thanks.